when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then, may we then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. You looking forward to that day or cringing? You know, Paul did say it was, it's a terrifying thing. It's knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we need to be ready because all of us will face him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son, our savior, to be your lamb, to take away our sin. Today, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this reenactment, this communion time, help us please, Lord to take the communion elements in a manner that's worthy, that we wouldn't drink damnation to ourselves. Help us, Lord. Prepare us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, testimony is what we are all about today. And um, if you weren't moved by our sister's testimony, <laughs> you got a heart of stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's not because of Natalie's fill in the blank. It's because of what the Lord has done in her life. And the Lord is in the business of raising dead people to, to life, isn't he? Giving us life because of him. And we're also going to be hearing a testimony from another individual today after the service or after we have our communion before we eat. Uh, someone is going to follow the Lord in the waters of baptism. And so please, uh, as we finish here today, let's adjourn to the fellowship hall. That's where the the baptistry is. But now, we know what a testimony means, right? But just in case you don't, let me give you a definition. It is a statement given for the purpose of establishing and recording the truth. It's usually connected with a courtroom. We think about testimony, right? When a person is asked or it's demanded of them that they give a testimony, how does it begin? I swear to get the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Yes, that's how it works. That's quite the introduction, isn't it? It is the raw, unadorned truth about how the person giving his or her testimony experienced the situation. But notice, though, how the oath is not stated. Something like this. You know, I promise to tell you what I think about what I might have seen according to my own truth. Does that ever happen? Uh, obviously not. And if someone were to say something like that in a court of law, what would the judge tell the defendant? Back it up and say it right. We want to hear about the truth, not about your truth. Or as Francis Schaeffer, an extremely godly man who wrote extremely good stuff, said before he went home to be with Jesus, he called that true truth. In other words, to give a testimony means, I'm not making this stuff up. This is the truth as best as I witnessed it, and God, who is truth, will help me to tell it to you. So a testimony is directly tied to truth. Duh, that's obvious, isn't it? Now, the Lord loves truth. Again, obvious. Scripture tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. You know, there are some things that God cannot do, and one of those things is lie. And God also expects his people to tell the truth to each other. See, when God gave the Ten Commandments, 
Not the ten suggestions, by the way. The ninth one simply states, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God considers truth-telling to be a really big deal. Now, we heard the testimony of truth, the truth of God in Natalie's life today. And today, together, we're going to participate in the testimony of the truth of God among us in our own lives. Now, it's called various things, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, or Thanksgiving. This event is a demonstration or a reenactment, if you will, and the reenactment of what God did for us in Christ. In this reenactment, we have very common elements, bread, contents of a cup. Now, Jesus and his disciples use unleavened bread and wine. We use gluten-free crackers and grape juice. (laughs) A little different. But the setting was a dinner of remembrance. After centuries of bondage in Egypt, the Lord sent Moses to deliver his people. Historical fact, truth. Ten plagues, the first nine disasters, and God calls them his wonders, only served to have the king of Egypt dig in his heels and refuse to let God's people go free from their slavery. Then came God's tenth wonder. It got personal for Pharaoh, for God promised to kill his firstborn son. And the firstborn son in any family who did not apply the blood of a lamb onto the door of their homes. All of Israel feared the Lord and obeyed. They believed the truth of the matter. Pharaoh and his people did not fear the Lord. They did not believe that what God was selling was the truth. But it took an angel of death to convince Pharaoh that indeed God says what he means, and he means what he says. Only for Pharaoh, it was too late. God's angel of death killed Pharaoh's firstborn son. The Passover was the observance of historical truth. God's people participated in the testimony. It was a solemn, joyous thing. A lot of food, fellowship among family. And in the case of Jesus and his disciples, it was fellowship shared between the disciple maker par excellence and the disciples. On this particular Passover observance, Jesus added the most unique features to it. At one point in the meal, Jesus took some unleavened bread. He broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples. He called this bread, my body. Now, a further excursion into the unexpected happened next with these words, my body is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this statement was Jesus' witness to his men. If we were his disciples, think back if you can, maybe transport yourself. If we were walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus, we would have right away remembered the day that he said this to the crowd of thousands. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. There was a second testimony Jesus gave during this meal. It was a cup of wine. Here's how he described it. He said, drink of it, all of you, 
For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The broken body of Jesus, the shed blood, two statements of testimony establishing truth. In the case of our Lord, it was a prophetic truth. See, in a few hours after the meal, the Son of God would experience His body being broken. He would experience His blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And both of these elements together fulfill the prophecy of God's Word called the New Covenant. Here's what He says in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. For this is the covenant I will make with those days, or with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother. Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Isn't that wonderful? Truth. Isn't that great? Now, this statement of truth, though, this testimony of God cost the sinless Son of God His life. But before Christ gave His life, there was something that we need to see, something we need to experience, kind of listen in on a conversation here. It's a profound thing, really, that we're going to talk about. Profound, but we so often miss it in the high drama of the dreaded anticipation of Christ's flogging, His crucifixion, His death, and His resurrection, as we read in the gospel accounts. So John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recorded this conversation between him and Governor Pilate when Jesus was standing before him. And so I want us to go in Scripture, John chapter 18, verses 36 to 38. So if you will, turn with me to John 18, 36 to 38. And this, again, this conversation is a profound thing. And really, it it tells the very reason for which Jesus came. Now, we think that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. It's true. But Jesus says something far more significant here than, as it were, and I'll put it in air quotes, than his mere death. Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus eventually answered. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am. In other words, in the vernacular today, absolutely. You nailed it. For this purpose, Jesus says, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Let me make a couple of comments here. First, remember the truth of repetition in Scripture. If Scripture says it once, it's important, right? If Scripture says it in twice in rapid-fire succession, it is really important. Notice what the Lord Jesus repeated here in rapid-fire succession, for emphasis. He said, I was born. I've come into the world. This was a setup of what Jesus was getting ready to say. 
and what was to follow. Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus come into the world? Here's the answer. To bear witness to the truth. Now, this statement right here does not sell well, does it, in our culture? Not at all. For what do we hear all the time? And not just in our culture, but you think everywhere in the world, truth is is basically non-existent. But what do we hear all the time? There's no such thing as absolute truth. Don't we hear that? And by the way, what is that statement? It's an absolute statement. So how in the world could that be if there's no absolute truth? See, truth is so exclusive. It is so narrow. But in the words of one author, to speak about the truth is the one purpose for which Jesus came. The one purpose. So the birth of Christ, his life, his mission, his position as king and Messiah, all of it and more were wrapped up in this one phrase, the truth. From the get-go, the world hated Jesus, hated him, unless, unless he gave them what they appreciated, like healing them, feeding them, raising some of them from the dead. Wonderful. They loved him for that kind of thing, right? But when he declared the truth about reality, who he was and what he came to do, all of it was met with disdain, wasn't it? Remember even Peter who told him when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be crucified, be handed over, be flogged, I'm going to die and rise again from the dead. What did Peter do? We know what Peter did. Lord, you better stop talking about all this crucifixion business. It's going to get you and us killed. But what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, he said. You are a stumbling block to me. Peter, if you could, you would prevent me from going to the cross. But my mission as Messiah is to die for the sins of the world and rise again from the dead. Peter, I am Lord over death and life. Jesus' life was wrapped up in his testimony. His life was a statement of the truth of who he was and is. And Jesus also gave a testimony about us. Who are we? We're all good people, right? No, that's not what Jesus told us. In fact, that's why they hated him. Because I tell people they're evil. That doesn't sell very well in the church, does it? Or anywhere, for that matter. It says we are image bearers of God. We're valuable, yes. But we're evil. We're fallen. We're wicked. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're in dire need of salvation before the wrath of God consumes everything that's evil. Messiah Jesus' mission was to rescue us. His broken body, his shed blood made that possible. And down through the ages, Jesus has been in the rescue business. Praise God for that. But again, the truth does not sell well and set well with humanity. We are evil, and Jesus tells us the truth about who we are. But, now that's the biggest word in the English language, isn't it? But, here's what it means. 
It means get ready because things are about to go the other way. And here's how it happens. The Holy Spirit convicts the sinner of his or her sins. You've ever had the experience of being convicted of your sins? You are if you're a Christian. And like Isaiah in the presence of God, a person says, woe to me. I am undone. I stand in the presence of God. I deserve to die. I deserve God's wrath. Is there any hope for me? And gloriously, the Holy Spirit brings not only the conviction, He brings the witness. Turn around. Look at the cross, dear one. There is redemption. There is forgiveness for you. And multiply millions down through the ages and all over the world have done just that. The Spirit of God makes us alive. The Father is satisfied. Our sins, which were many, are now taken away by the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven. And now we as his sons and daughters, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, are now free. We're now free to serve him. I love how Brother Paul Washer describes this. We enter in through the narrow door, and that door is Jesus. And because we have received new life, we will continue to walk in the narrow way, following Jesus for the rest of our days. Not perfectly, but loyally. And it stands to reason. See, the phrase, follower of Jesus, is a description for a Christian, is it not? Also, another, another um, phrase is an imitator of God, to mimic God. That's another phrase that describes a Christian. So a Christian, as it were, accompanies Jesus on his way. He doesn't accompany us on our way. If we're a follower of Christ, what do we do? We follow him. He didn't follow us. Jesus places strict demands on his followers and all would-be followers in the gospel of Luke, as he says it, Luke 9, 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, this is significant, extremely so. See, of all the things that Jesus could have said and described his followers as and what it took to be his follower, here's what he said. One's own cross is at the front and center of it all. See, in the first century, People, people took up crosses. Everybody knew where they were going. They were going to their death. They were not coming back. And once a follower of Jesus took up his or her cross, it was never again business as usual. They were making a statement. They were giving a testimony, establishing and recording truth in their lives. They were now living a totally new normal, never to again return to one's own ways. Every cross-carrying follower of Jesus is making a solemn but joy-filled testimony. See, our testimony to follow Jesus is to be a joy-filled thing. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? I don't see a whole lot of smiles. Take newlyweds, for example, all right? Those of you who have been married for a little while, you know, you can remember, maybe way back time, right? 
right after the honeymoon, you know, the bride and groom, they go back to work, you know. And they establish their lives together. And the bride, she can't wait to get to work, to talk to her, her friends who weren't able to make it to the wedding about what that day was like, right? And so when they ask her, hey, how was the wedding? Her countenance falls. And through gritted teeth, she says, we made a commitment. We are now going to follow and love each other for better or worse. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, what does she do? How does she act? She's full of happiness, full of happiness. And it's because they made a solemn promise to one another inside of God. Isn't that true? And every year, the couple remembers their vows. Now, for this year, coming up in a couple months, Kitty and I are going to be celebrating number 42. Two. Yes. <laughs> 42. Now, and we praise the Lord for that, for us allowing you to be married for this long. It's great. Now, we've had some for better times. We've had for some for worse times. But the testimony of the truth of our marriage happened on Guam, April 5th, 1980, right? We made joy-filled vows to one another. And that started it. That was a rock-solid foundation upon which we built our marriage. It was a joy-filled vow. And so now we followers of Christ have made solemn, joy-filled vows to Him because He gave us His grace and gave us His mercy. We know the truth, and we're trying to live out the reality that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. When he says this, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Regardless of how treacherous the road, we loyally follow Jesus, constantly exercising our will to rejoice in what? In him, in him. Even as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always. And again, I say, rejoice. There's that repetition again. It's important. It's important, very important. But our testimony into Christ most certainly will not be met with the applause of the world. We did know that, didn't we? Our testimony before the watching world will be met with disdain. It will be. It's what we signed up for. Always has, always will. And the truth is that unless a person responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, our testimony will rarely be welcomed. Certainly, when we provide for the needs of those around us, we give them stuff, or we're we're being kind to them, acting kindly, and being patient with with those who really are annoyed with us, sometimes they will react and they'll respond positively, sometimes. But when we tell them the truth about who Christ is, and we tell them the truth about who we are and who they are, and that we're accountable to the Lord, and we're going to face Him one day, that doesn't go over very well, does it? At all. Nevertheless, Christ has called us to not only give a testimony, He's called us to be, by our very lifestyle, to be the witness in front of the watching world. 
Remember how when the Lord stood before Pilate? See, on a human level, the governor had power to set Jesus free, didn't he? And I would imagine if Jesus would have begged for his life, that Pilate would have found some way to make that happen. But Jesus was a witness to the truth, and he gave his life for the sake of his testimony. And I find it very instructive that the word translated witness is a Greek word, martis. Martis. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> the word martyr comes to mind. At this point, we need to be asking a question, a sobering question. How did the word martis become equated with dying for Christ? The simple answer is that the testimonies of the early Christ followers so often resulted in their deaths that we look back on that and we say they died as martyrs. They died as witnesses for Christ because back then it was automatic almost. So many people died as witnesses because their witness was conspicuous and the world did not like it. But it wasn't the fact, though, that they worshiped Jesus is what got them into trouble. They were not horribly tortured because they worshiped Jesus. Did you know that? They were horribly tortured, and they died as martyrs because they worshiped Jesus alone, not Jesus and Caesar. See, it was okay to follow Jesus back then, as long as one bowed the knee to Caesar as a God also. But a Christian could not do that, and a Christian today cannot do that either. And we do have some Caesars in our midst today or those who think that they're Caesar, right? It reminds me of what Brother Paul Washer said of what persecution of God's people will look like when it becomes more and more commonplace in our country. As we saw earlier today, persecution is not only a reality in our country, it will greatly intensify as time goes on. We got to hear this. Washer rightly said that we won't suffer because we worship Jesus we will suffer because we refuse to bow down to the idols of the day. He said that we will be accused of being absolutely intolerant bigots and haters of the worst kind if we hold to the truth. For example, if we as Christians respectfully but firmly continue to say Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God, we will be persecuted. Persecution will occur when we say that the only marriage that God accepts is between one biologically born man and a logically born woman. Or that Christians refuse to give in to the demands that pronouns are to be used based on one's preferred gender and not biology. And even take the issue of COVID and wearing a mask or two or three. And statistically, how low the death rate, death rate actually is or how safe or unsafe the vaccine is. The bottom line is simply this. Christians are to witness to the truth of things, about who God is, about who we are, about how we are to operate in God's world. We're not allowed to bear false witness to one another, like lying to a male when he demands we use specifically female pronouns to spare his feelings. Love for our Lord means that we are to tell the truth to fellow image bearers of God. Every one of us, though, must draw the line in the sand. 
We must say, this is my non-negotiable. I will not cross this line. Now, the question we need to ask is, what non-negotiables are there in your life? In order to be a faithful witness to Christ, where are you going to draw that line? Are your lines the COVID issue? Or pronouns according to one's biology? Or that Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God? Or something else? Where are you going to take your stand to be faithful witness that the Lord has called you and me to be? We must figure that out sooner rather than later. See, the politically correct and cancel culture crowd really hasn't begun to flex their muscles yet, although we're seeing some of it. They haven't really, they haven't been there yet. They haven't started. But they will in increasing intensity and increasing measure. Now is the time to settle the issue in the very core of our being before the real heat of the battle comes because when we're in the middle of the battle, it's too late. In the challenging words attributed to Martin Luther, who was definitely persecuted for his faith, although he didn't die as a martyr for Christ, here's what he said. If we are correct and right in our Christian life at every point, but we refuse to stand for the truth at a particular point, and I would add a moral or cultural point, where the battle rages, then we are traitors to Christ. There is a battle for truth in our culture, and we need to stand firm as those who give a true testimony, a faithful witness to Christ. And so this morning, let's ponder anew and afresh of just what Jesus' faithful witness cost him, as we'll have communion. In response, let's commit ourselves to following him joyfully, solemnly, willing to pay any price out of our love for him because he loved us first. Jesus challenged us in this way. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. May we live our lives the way the Lord would have us worship him in spirit and in truth. Everywhere we go, with whomever we are with, for the glory of God and for the sake of Jesus.